This morning I was talking with my brother and at some point we were talking about the state of the world and I made the comment that sometimes it fills me with such sadness to realize what kind of a world I'm leaving for my grandchildren. And I can actually, no surprise to those of you who know me, get fairly weepy about that. So it seems like right now it's very, very difficult. And we've noticed here at the center that attendance has gone up this summer. And, you know, usually it's the reverse. It gets to be summer and people go off and do things. And but it's been fairly busy here. And at first I thought, oh, we made some programming changes, that's why it is. But then I realized that was probably being a little bit conceited. It didn't have much to do with programming changes and it might have a lot to do with how difficult (coughs) the world is. So I wanted to tie that in some with what we've been talking about these many weeks. I heard that last week it got a little bit interesting, Dan told me, (laughs) and um, about dual and non-dual and what was true. So let me maybe start by saying I have no idea what's true. And I don't think any of you do either, really. We make our best guess. And in one of the ways of holding it, is a very traditional teaching that there are two truths, two realities. One is ultimate reality, a reality that can't really be spoken because we don't actually, I mean, who here can say that you know what ultimate reality is? You've got four puny inches of gray matter, and if you could figure out ultimate reality, that would be pretty amazing. But we do our best, right? We like to think about it. And the other is relative, time and space, me and you, today and tomorrow, and where we um, function in a very dualistic kind of world. And both of those are considered to be true and both are necessary for the other. Can't have one without the other. Either side is not really wise view. So in a very real sense, all of the discussion, all of you had different points of view last week, were right. It's important to remember that as we practice, because we practice both in time and space, and we also practice with some sense of a really, really big picture that we don't fully understand. And when we're, we have a, a world that's difficult, and you know, this is not the first time that the world's been difficult. I mean, many, many people for many, many hundreds and thousands of years have thought maybe, you know, maybe we've finally blown it. Maybe we finally have, I don't know. Um, But it is difficult, and so we have to find a way to practice in this very difficult world. One of the lists that we met earlier on, 
a few weeks ago, we talked about the five spiritual faculties. Some of you may have been here that evening. So we talked about faith and effort and mindfulness and concentration and wisdom. And that particular set of faculties, I think that that the way the five faculties list works is it's sort of an ingredients list. This is what is needed to put into the mix of a good practice. And, And we talked about how mindfulness is kind of the umbrella faculty and can kind of monitor what's needed that um, faith, that kind of juicy, inspirational, falling in love, trusting place can be balanced by the insight and clarity of wisdom and that the push and passion of effort and energy can be balanced by the quiet and calmness of concentration. And that Part of the art of practice is to um, keep sussing out where you are and what you need and where is it tonight. Well, that very same list, the five faculties, is also a list called the five strengths. And in the 37 wings of awakening, that's 10 of the wings right there. It's pretty amazing, actually, when you think about it. You know, big, a whole third, of, or almost a third, quarter third, of the of these wings consist of these these faculties, so it's it's actually a pretty um, big list, and so in the sense of there being strengths, this is what you have to work with these different elements. So one of the questions I wanted to ask you tonight is how many people here know that this practice has helped. Yeah, look at that. Whew, I'm going home. <laughs> I'm done. You know, this is great. I love it. I thought there would be a lot. I wasn't sure. I don't know that I thought there would be that many. It's one of the things I love about teaching, you know, is when people come and say, I don't know what I would do in this or that situation without this practice. Because that lets me know that what those of us who are teaching are doing is helping. So I'm really glad to see so many of you. So you know that there are strengths in this practice. You know that there are, there are insights, there's wisdom, there's faith, there's a way that you're using your energy, there's a way that you can calm your mind, there's that overarching thing of mindfulness that actually has helped you. And if we had time, we could have a re- we could start a retreat tonight for about a week, and we could all tell our stories about how it's helped. It'd be a great retreat. We'd probably love it, and there'd be wonderful stories about how this practice has helped you. So we come to this moment in time, and there's as I talk to people and as I read as I try not to listen to to the radio too much. You know, over and over we're hearing how people are scared, how people are worried, what's going to happen, we don't know, what's happened to our country. It's enormous. And what we do, we know two things. If my friend Ajahn Sumedho were here, he would say, this is the way it is. This is the way 
a kind of a cultural, political crisis is. None of us were responsible for it solely. We probably all contributed our little bits. It's the result of vast political, cultural, um, the karma of our country. And so it's the result, it's the consequences of actions, that's what karma is, that have happened over a long, long period of time. And here we are. So, this is the way it is. It is the karma of our country. We are all part of that, you know, and there's actually a saying in the equanimity practice that says, all beings are the inheritors of their karma. We've kind of inherited this particular thing. My wishes for things to be different will not change things. Wish all you want, but it won't do a thing, will it? The only thing that will change things is my actions. That's all. So, what that's saying is, every one of us have actions that then create reverberations, just like that. You do something and it reverberates. And that's all you can do. So I was telling a group, I was teaching on the Big Island last week, and I was telling a group of people, I can remember back, I think it was um, when the Iraq war started, and we were still meeting in the California Street Church, and someone, you know, it was a time of a lot of despair, 9-11 had happened, the war was happening, people were really upset, and someone said, you know, I, there's nothing I can do except to live in a way that is skillful and peaceful and to do the most kind and compassionate and peaceful things that I know how to do in order to create that kind of reverberation. And that if enough of us do those kind and compassionate and peaceful things, there's more reverberation. That's all you can do. That's all you can do. In another teaching, we're getting lots of lists tonight, in another teaching, it's about the five recollections. I've talked about it a lot, so many of you know it. I am of the nature to age, I am of the nature to sicken, I am of the nature to die. That's what's, you know. Everything that I have, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise. And then the last one, which is germane to what we're saying tonight. All that I have is my karma. That's all. That's the only thing that you've really got is to act in such a way that it creates that kind of reverberation. So in order to do that, we need this strength for our practice. We need a practice that allows us to come back, as we did tonight, to take our seat, whether you're sitting on a cushion or a chair, that doesn't matter, to bring your attention in, and to practice being present, being mindful, so that we can then go out and be in the world. So you have, every one of you has the strength of faith. You have some faith in this practice. You would not be here tonight if you didn't have that. 
You may have more or less. You may be just have the kind of faith that's a little bit curious. What is this Buddhism thing? Or maybe you've been doing it for a long time. Maybe you've just been practicing for six months and you're just madly in love with Buddhism and you can just reading books and listening to talks and all of that. Who knows? We're all at different places. But it, everyone has it. And that place of inspiration and trust and and willingness to follow is a strength that you can use for your practice. And use it to inspire yourself, use it to bring yourself back to sitting groups, to retreats, to study groups, whatever, over and over and over again. Every one of you... So here's another question, actually. Let's try it this way. How many of you had to push just a little bit, or maybe a lot, to get here tonight. Yeah, me too. Right. Mm-hmm. Except, you know, if I don't show up, that's bad, so that, that helps. But, you know, it takes a push, right? And if you didn't take a push to show up tonight, it's taken a push other times to get on your cushion during the week, to come to other classes, to go to... I don't know how many retreats I've gone to. <coughs> Russell could tell you, Maybe where I've said within a period of three or four days, I don't want to go. It's too much. I don't care if it's a retreat. I don't want to go. I'm staying home. I've done enough retreats. I, I don't particularly like that teacher. It's the wrong time. Or my tummy hurts. Or whatever, you know. And then there's that kind of little push that it takes where you kind of go, oh, all right, I'll go. And you pack your bags and you do all the things to set your life in order in order to go on retreat. Every one of us has taken some kind of energy. It's a strength that you have, is that willingness, that that energy that is disciplined and comes in over and over and over again to keep you going more or less in the same direction. Every one of you knows how to focus your mind. You've all done, even if you've done just the smallest amount of practice, you've begun by giving your attention to the breath. And you've learned at least a little bit how to keep it there. And you know what? If you're brand new to practice, if if any of you should be here for the first time ever tonight, you still know how to focus your mind. You drive a car, you do your work, you do all the different kinds of things that take focus and concentration And you'd better pay attention because if you don't, you're in trouble. And that's part of where we learn how to be concentrated and focused. And we take those same skills and we bring them to our practice. It's not anything new or different. It's just using what you already know in another way. And then every one of you has had some insight. Insight into yourselves, insight into how you practice, but you've all had maybe what some of our Zen friends call one of the most important insights, which is you know you need to meditate. Our Soto Zen friends say to sit is to be enlightened. Isn't that great? (laughs) Ta-da! Here we are, you know, we've all been sitting. And really what that's pointing at is that knowing that we need to practice is a very enlightened kind of knowing. 
And maybe it's the only knowing we really get, because then, you know, there's a lot of not knowing. So it's a very wise place that brings you to sitting. And then other insights arise. And one of the most important insights is the insight about karma. And so that's where then beginning to understand that what what we can do in times like this. And this is not at all to say that you don't go out and do whatever you do in the world of political and social action. Of course you do. But we also need to do it from a place of being present and awake and to do it as skillfully as possible. You know, how many of us have heard stories of people who are being activists for peace and who are really so angry that they can hardly see straight and so they're not being very peaceful in their very work for peace. It doesn't work if you do it that way. So, so we have to figure out how do we bring our practice right into our action. And, and it's having the strength to practice that I think is so important right now. And bringing ourselves back over and over and over again. The umbrella is of always mindfulness. Always, always paying attention what's needed, what's true in this present moment, because this is the way it is, changes from moment to moment to moment. This is the way the sitting is, and this is the way listening to a Dharma talk is, and maybe in a little bit this is the way eating your supper is, or this is the way... Um, taking a shower is. And, and so from moment to moment, the whatever is, is, changes. That's part of the teaching. <clears throat> when we practice in this way, it's really interesting, and I, I'm not even sure I could tell you entirely how it is that it works. The practice is very simple. There's not, in Buddhist practice, there's not a lot of metaphysical teaching. There's not a lot of beliefs or cosmological structures that you're asked to buy into. People have thought about them and talked about them. But it's not, you know, it's not like you have to shine onto a set of beliefs and then somehow you become a Buddhist. But it's it's a way. It's a way that you walk. It's something that you do. And so the, the doing of it is very much in that relative truth place, right? You you sit, you come to classes or retreats, you create time. You follow your own breath. You do loving-kindness practice for your friend. You wish that they would get well. All of those kinds of things. It's very time and space. But what it seems to open us up to, and this is the place where it gets interesting, is how little we know and how very big the picture is. And... When we when we begin to see that, 
when we see, you know, that this is a very, very, very small moment in time, that can help actually to also relax into that place of um, that our consciousness, our awakeness, we can, it, it, I don't even know how to say this clearly. It's a very small moment in time, and we're awake in it. And the, the equanimity that that brings is really, I think, what allows us to act skillfully in this moment in time. That may not be clear, but you can ask me about it in a couple of minutes and we'll chew on it. So, we have strength to practice. You have wings with which to wake up. We've done all 37 at this point. We're going to go over them again next week, sort of our final week in this series. We added on a week. Um, and um, But you, you have them. And that strength, I think, is the place that we can rest and soften and open. And in that resting and softening and open and the discipline of practice it's then where we see clearly what it is we need to do and how it is we need to live. I found a poem the other day so I thought I'd read it to you to end with and then we'll take some questions. It's by a woman whose name is Rebecca Bagup and it's called Testimony. And the subtitle is For My Daughters. I want to tell you that the world is still beautiful. I tell you that despite children raped on city streets, shot down in schoolrooms, despite the slow poisons seeping from old and hidden sins into our air, soil, water, despite the thinning film that encloses our aching world, despite my own terror and despair. I want you to know that spring is no small thing, that the tender grasses curling like a baby's fine hairs around your fingers are a recurring miracle. I want to tell you that the river rocks shine like God, that the crisp voices of orange and gold October leaves are laughing at death. I want to remind you to look beneath the grass to note the fragile hieroglyphs of ant, snail, beetle. I want you to understand that you are no more and no less necessary than the brown recluse, the ruby-throated hummingbird, the humpback whale, the profligate mimosa. I want to say, like Neruda, that I am waiting for a great and common tenderness, that I still believe we are capable of attention, that anyone who notices the world must want to save it.
So, you know, maybe that's really some of the strength of our practice, is that it is really a practice of the gift of attention to our own being and to all that is around us. And that when we give that gift of attention, that gift of presence, that's what begins to make a difference. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.